Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, the company behind Your Cancer, an effort to bring together the community that has worked together to bring us miles closer to a world without cancer. Learn more at yourcancer.org. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cancer prevention with Dr. Beth Jones and Jose de Jesus. Dr. Jones is a research scientist and lecturer in epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, where Jose de Jesus is a community health educator. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Beth, maybe we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do um, and a little bit about cancer prevention, because a lot of people out there are very scared about the whole topic of cancer and may or may not be aware that there are many things that you can do to actually prevent the disease. Right. So, um I'm, a, I'm trained as a cancer epidemiologist, but I have always worked on issues of addressing um, cancer disparities, so how cancer plays out differently across different groups. And that work, as well as the work of a lot of other scientists and, um, and community folks and people who run programs, really informs a lot of our activities. Uh, and right now, we are currently involved in rolling out programs uh, to inform people about how they can prevent cancer, how they can stay healthy, how they can take care of their families, keep their families healthy, as well as uh, the importance of cancer screening exams. And Jose, you're out there in the community. Tell us a little bit more about what you do. Um, well, I have an awesome job. Um, I get to talk to folks and give them um, some great information on getting screened and um, cancer prevention. Uh, we do that uh, by a variety of uh, ways. We do that um, at health fairs. Uh, we also do presentations at local businesses and um, non-governmental um, agencies. Uh, we also have free, different types of free screening events out in the community. So um, my job is really to take that information out to those pockets in the community where we know there's um, some disparities or we know that the um, uh, screening rates are a little bit lower. So we want to impact um, um, those rates and bring that information to the folks. So tell us a little bit more, Beth, about screening and prevention. I mean, if you get screened, does that mean that you won't get cancer? Or, I mean, tell us the difference between kind of primary and secondary prevention. Right. So primary prevention or just preventing cancer um, really are things that people can do to to avoid um ever being diagnosed with a cancer. And those fit into categories of healthy lifestyles, sort of um, certainly the biggest factor that one can do to avoid uh, a cancer diagnosis, not just lung cancer, but is to avoid tobacco. Um, and also to have a uh, to exercise regularly, to um, eat lots of, um, to eat nutritionally, to maintain a healthy weight, things like that. And the difference is when it, when we're talking about cancer screening and particularly cancer screening exams, these are tests that have been shown when they are conducted in large uh, groups of the population that they actually can prevent mortality from that cancer. So the idea here is that we screen people who don't have any symptoms at all for that particular cancer, and there are different tests. It depends on which which uh, cancer site we're targeting. But the point is to find uh, 
a cancer which is just beginning to grow. It's at an early stage, and in that way, it's much more easily treated. Uh, the treatment is um, usually less invasive, and then the outcomes are much better. So, Jose, tell us a little bit more about some of these cancer screenings that you talk to people about. Well, um, first, uh, uh, it's important to know that most of uh, the screenings, they probably start around age 40. So I tell folks, if you're uh, 40 and over, I want to talk to you. And I think that's, I think, a great opportunity when um, folks turn 40 to start talking to their doctor, what's going to be appropriate uh, for them. But the main um, uh, cancers that we tried um, to get folks to screen for are obviously women uh, breast, uh, men prostate, and both women in uh, colorectal and lung cancer. Those are the big ones in our area that we try to affect. And the, um, um, the screening uh, tests now are some of them are a lot simpler than they used to be. So let's talk, let's take each of those big four and maybe we'll touch on some others as well and talk about the screening that's recommended. Um, so Beth, what about for women uh, in terms of uh, screening for breast cancer? There's been a lot of controversy in terms of what's appropriate. What do you tell folks? Well, we, we actually um, follow guidelines which, which are approved by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, as well as other professional groups. So in, uh, generally what we recommend is that somebody be screened, not be screened before the age of 40, and, and um, to have their first screening exam, a mammography exam, before they turn 50. And the idea is that then they should be talking to their doctor about when, during that uh, time range, when they should actually undergo screening, but also what they're, that's for an average risk women, woman. So if their risk is actually a bit higher, um, they would want to be talking with their physician to know about the best time. And then that would also determine whether they had annual screening exams, one every year, or they could go every two years. And how long do you tell them to keep screening? I mean, forever and ever, amen? Or is there a cut point at which you'd say, you know what, at this point, you really don't need to have a mammogram anymore? Again, I think that's, you know, between a woman and her physician. Um, I think a general guideline is generally at least until age 74. But after that, it really depends on the woman's risk, her individual risk, as well as her health status and her priorities. And I think the the importance of that shared decision-making or informed decision-making um, for all of the cancers that we talk about can't be overstated. It's really critical that while we give recognition recommendations to, um, you know, the general public and, and certainly Jose and our team are out in the, um, in the community offering recommendations. We always stress the importance of talking to one's physician. Great. So, Jose, the second one that you mentioned in that kind of big four was prostate cancer. And so what do you tell men in terms of prostate cancer, especially when, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff about, you know, prostate cancers often being indolent. Um, what are the current recommendations that you talk to them about for screening for prostate cancer? Um, well, again, um, we always stress that you want to have that conversation with your physician and with all um, other cancer screenings. Your family history um, is very important in making those decisions. Uh, but I try to 
tell um, the guys at 40, you should start having that conversation um, with your doctor. Um, the current uh, screening guidelines, I believe, for average risk um, uh, male is, I, I believe, is start at 50 with the uh, PSA and the DRE, the digital rectal exam, and the PSA blood test. Um, but if you're African American or if you're from the African Dispar and you have um, um, family history of cancer, you might want to talk to your doctor. That might want to start at age 40 or 45. So again, that's that conversation that you're having with your urologist, with your primary care physician to find out exactly when and for how long you should be uh, testing uh, for prostate. And again, there's uh, the stigma of the DRE um, that a lot of um, guys, especially us, you know, tough guys that we think, uh, you know, oh my God, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. And I tell folks that five seconds of being uncomfortable can save your life. So, Good point. Um, and so, we could make that same comment about women and um, mammography. A lot of women are actually fearful that mammograms are going to be painful. And and sometimes they, they're they not the most comfortable thing at times. But it is, again, a very short-lived discomfort, and, and the um, payoff is certainly well worth it. So, Beth, the, other, the, the third one that uh, you mentioned uh, was for colon cancer. Yeah. And a lot of people may be wondering about colon cancer screening because there are so many tests available for colon cancer screening. What, what do you talk to people about in terms of colon cancer screening? Well, I think traditionally, particularly here in Connecticut, um, colonoscopy was the standard of care. And a colonoscopy is an exam where um, it requires anesthesia. And generally, it was started around age 50. And and if you were, uh, if there were no serious findings, um, it only has to be repeated in about 10 years. There's huge advantages to that. Um, But more recently, and sort of collectively across the United States, we realized that a lot of folks just aren't getting a colonoscopy. And there are good reasons. Sometimes um, someone cannot have anesthesia, or it's just not the right exam for them. So very recently, uh, at a national level, we're also now promoting, and and here in Connecticut, we promote uh, both either colonoscopy or annual um, tests that that test for fecal occult blood. Um, It's a blood test. Actually, Jose can even speak to speak to this better than I can because he's giving the instructions out in the community. But this is a test that can be done in your home. Um, very simple. It's a mailed packet into a lab. Uh, the one disadvantage there is that it really does need to be done annually to have the same impact as a colonoscopy. So um, the thinking here is that there's not one test isn't necessarily better than the other, but for those people who would not be tested, we certainly now have this other option. Jose, did you? Yeah, sounds good. I think it's a <laughs> it's it's a home stool test, and I think um, for folks that are fearful of the prep, I think that's the biggest um, drawback to the community when they really don't know um, how colonoscopy works and the prep work to it, and they hear stories from their neighbors or their family members. Um, so I think for folks, that's the biggest barrier uh, to get a colonoscopy. So this is just another option that you should be talking to your physician with um, to maybe maybe the fit kit um, they call them fit kits um, is a, appropriate 
test for you. The disadvantage, again, uh, as Beth said, is that you have to um, do it every year. And again, having that consistency in some pockets of our population can become problematic. Whereas um, the gold standard, which is the colonoscopy, you got to remember the doc is already there. And if there's something there that he needs to biopsy or something like that, he can do that right there in real time and you can get better information on what's going on. So there's, you know, not to say that one is better than the other, but they're just different. But if they're applied at the right intervals and obviously having that dialogue with your doctor, then both should be fine. And so, Jose, the last uh, of those big four that you mentioned was lung cancer. Tell us a little bit more about lung cancer screening. Uh, well, um, lung cancer screening, um, it involves a, um, I won't say a uh, rigorous uh, um equation to find out if you're if you're um, appropriate or not. And by that, I mean the pack year history. That's always um, us folks out in the community always struggle with how to um, make sure that the pack year histories is appropriate for folks to be screened. And again, that conversation also sh- you should be having with your physician. But it's a very simple, uh, low-dose uh, chest x-ray. Um, so the well, test actually is... actually a CAT scan. CAT scan, rather. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, and um, it's... Um, it's pretty much painless, and you get the results fairly, fairly quickly. Yeah. But you have to have been a smoker in order to be screened for lung cancer. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. I mean, Um, I I don't know if there's other environmental issues or whatever, but that a physician would um, um, order that test. But by and large, the standard is you have to be either a current or prior smoker. All right. And then there's some variations on that, which is, Jose alluded to, are sometimes difficult even um, for physicians to have the time to uh, document this information in the medical record. But it's incredibly important that it is documented. So when we say a 30-pack year history, that would be smoking one pack a day for 30 years. But you can also achieve that by if you smoke two packs a day for 15 years. So uh, and the other thing is, even for people who are former smokers, uh, if they, if it's been less than 15 years since they stopped smoking and they did have a high smoking, they were smoking a lot at that time, they're still eligible for screening. Well, this is all really great information. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about cancer prevention with my guests, Dr. Beth Jones and Jose de Jesus. This is a medical minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Beth Jones and Jose de Jesus. We're talking about cancer prevention, and right before the break... Beth really talked to us a little bit about the difference between primary prevention, which is, you know, doing all of those things that keep you healthy and prevent you from getting a cancer diagnosis in the first place, not smoking, 
maintaining a healthy body weight, exercising, eating nutritionally, um, you know, drinking alcohol in moderation or abstaining. Um, all of those things can reduce your risk of ever getting cancer to begin with. But then we really started talking about secondary prevention or screening tests, helping us to find those cancers really early and prevent cancer-related death. We talked about breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer. And, Jose, I thought, you know, we might get into a, a few of the other cancers that we didn't mention before the break. So things like cervical cancer. What do you tell folks in terms of screening for cervical cancer? Well, um, it's um, it's a we have a program that offers um, that to um, the women here in the greater uh, New Haven areas, as as also in the state of Connecticut. And we tell folks again, that's a conversation that you have to start having um, with your physician and when to start screening. I believe the um, the screening uh, test is a PAP. Uh, test and uh, it's a very uh, uh, simple uh, uh, test and that's the kind of conversation that you can just start having with your physician at what age, Beth? I believe eighteen or yeah. twenty-one. So those are the conversations that you need. Well, to when have. one is sexually active, I think sure. is when we really should probably be talking about it with our physicians. Yep, gynecologists, uh, uh, primary care physicians. And Beth, you know, talking about cervical cancer, you know, while a Pap test is great in terms of screening, we actually do have primary prevention for cervical cancer, right? It's amazing that we have HPV vaccine. We now know that nearly all um, cervical cancers are associated with HPV, uh, human papilloma virus. And this is sexually transmitted. And, and there is a vaccine. And as you may recall, that uh, this was initially rolled out sort of targeting younger girls primarily. Um, I think we recommend beginning around age nine. And parents, that's a conversation again between parents and their pediatricians. But and, and when girls are fairly young, it used to be rolled, I mean, we we uh, were promoting vaccine. However, there is now data also showing that we should be rolling that out for young boys, too. And I think that's where the real opportunity is here. Uh, in terms of Connecticut, we have fairly high HPV vaccination rates, at least the first one. Um, there's a series of three um, uh, uh, the original vaccine as well as two boosters. But it's, I think, our opportunity here is to really make sure that young men, young boys are also vaccinated. And why is that? Because if HPV prevents cervical cancer, they don't have cervixes. Um, so what what does it prevent in boys? Well, in boys, it actually can prevent uh, cancer, penile cancer, cancer of the penis, as well as anal cancer. And the other, you know, certainly... Um, maybe adolescent boys aren't thinking of it just then, but as they grow up, they will want to be protecting their partners as well. So it's certainly, as an epidemiologist, we see this as key to sort of controlling uh, HPV infection rates and ultimately these other cancers. The other thing I would say is that we've actually, uh, in Connecticut, we've, had, we've been promoting HPV vaccine. There are a lot of programs uh, that have been promoting this for some time, and our, our vaccination rates are higher than they are in some places. And we now have, um, you know, only 125 cancer, uh, cervical cancer cases per year, and I think that's a real measure of our success. Yeah. You know, the other thing in, in men is that HPV vaccine can reduce head and neck cancers. Um, so, you know, 
Jose, in terms of head and neck cancer, uh, aside from primary prevention, what do we do in terms of secondary prevention? Are there certain people who are particularly at risk of head and neck cancers, and and how should they get screened? Well, like um, we've said before, um, um, chewing tobacco, smoking tobacco products, that um, um, really accelerates your risk. Um, also, um, um, limiting uh, your alcohol consumption would also lower that risk. But I think um, there's also occupational um, hazards to some folks um, that are out in the um, construction workers, um, guys that are on welders and stuff like that. There's um, occupational hazards to um, head and neck uh, cancers also. And so what do you recommend for people who are at risk um, of head and neck cancers, Uh, people who may uh, chew tobacco, who may chew betel nut, you know, various cultures uh, have um, certain products that uh, predispose to head and neck cancers. Is it possible for them to get screened like uh, with an inspection of their uh, head, neck, their mouth, their oral pharynx, yep. and so on. And and what do you recommend for that? Well, we um, um, there's uh, free head and neck cancer screenings throughout the whole uh, country. There's the um, um, Head and Neck Cancer Alliance that uh, promotes uh, free screenings, and it's really uh, it's a really catchy term. It's a five minute checkup from the neck up, and literally you have either uh, ENT or um, oral surgeon or a dentist, um, and, and I tell folks it's a good opportunity every six months when you go see your dentist to make sure that he's checking for those things. And bas- basically, it's a visual inspection of the nose, the mouth, the ears, the glands. They feel the glands around your neck. They look at your skin. So um, a lot of the um, folks that have been targeted for follow-up with these uh, free head and neck screenings were folks that had some kind of basal or something on their nose, on their on their ears or something like that that did not know that they had cancer and it was able to be picked up and taken care of at a very early stage. So again, it's a visual um, screening that can be done by any ENT, dentist, oral surgeon, those kind of guys. All right. You know, and women. <laughs> yes, yes, and women. Uh, you know, you mentioned skin cancers. And, um, Beth, while we talk about basal cancers and squamous cancers being relatively common, um, one of the most feared skin cancers is melanoma. Um, is there a way to prevent melanoma, number one, in terms of primary prevention? And number two, what about screening for melanoma in terms of secondary prevention? So in terms of avoiding melanoma, um, some of it actually is family history. But what we know about melanoma is an awful lot of it is driven by sun exposure. So uh, it's generally recommended that one protect themselves and, and avoid the sun in the middle of the day when it's hottest. Um, and then when they're out in the sun, to to cover up as much as possible. And it's important, too, that people cover their heads because, uh, especially if you have lighter colored hair and or not much hair on top, um, one is ex- certainly exposed to the sun in that way. In terms of screening, so as with head and neck cancer, um, skin cancer screening is not one of the officially recommended screening exams. And yet, Um, There have been a lot of studies that have shown that visual inspection is effective in picking up those cancers. So we actually, and I think many people do, um, advocate skin cancer screening. And again, it's another visual inspection. It's not invasive. Um, one, to do, it, to do it effectively or to have, to have an effective exam, one needs to um, disrobe, to, to let a, uh, the inspector look at your 
body from top to bottom, and they often go through your hair to look for lesions that you may not be able to see. Some people have advocated having, um, you know, a partner. Not all of us can see our backs, and so having someone else uh, just keep an eye on things. And we do offer those kinds of exams um, in Connecticut, and it's good to um, uh, take advantage of them. So. Just to go back to uh, kind of primary prevention, Jose, um, you know, there has been a lot of talk about tanning and melanoma. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, do we have to avoid tanning beds in order to... Uh, reduce our risk of melanoma? Uh, most definitely. I think um, any uh, dermatologist, uh, we work a lot with a good dermatologist team here, and that's the recommendation to avoid uh, the tanning beds. And Complete it, abstinence. It, to avoid, because it increases, again, um, the uh, the rays that will ultimately, if you're going to have that type of cancer, will ultimately affect that. So you want to, like Beth said, you want to limit your, your exposure to sun and artificial sunlight. You want to um, expose your um, and protect yourself and limit your exposure. Beth, what do we tell people about sunscreen? I mean, is it effective? Is it not effective? Is there a certain SPF that we should be looking at? I mean, should we wear it only in the summer? Is Do we need to wear it in the winter? Do we need to reapply? I mean, there's all of these questions in terms of sunscreen and reducing your risk of, of melanoma. Well, sunscreen certainly does protect um, people from sun exposure, but it has to be applied liberally. I think most of the data show that most individuals don't apply it often enough and and thick enough. Um, the, the, the sunscreens that seem to be really protective kind of work almost in a mechanical way. They, they have probably some zinc oxide in them. Um, but I think the other message that's really important for us to communicate is that sometimes, you know, cancers are very slow growing, but the exposures that ultimately may lead to a cancer as an adult can happen very early in life. So it's really important for parents, families to take care of their youngest kids, make sure they are completely covered up in the sun. Really, children don't need to have, they, they need to be, they really don't need any sun exposure. And for certainly teenagers, particularly um, those who go to tanning salons and things like that, that's that can be quite dangerous. And in fact, in Connecticut, there is a law which... Um, in which uh, anyone under the age of 18 is not supposed to be receiving tanning and tanning beds. You know, now that you're mentioning teenagers, it brings up the concept of the other teenage epidemic that people talk about, that uh, which is vaping. So um, we talked about, you know, quitting cigarette smoking uh, as being primary preventative for many cancers, not just lung cancer. But what are the data, Jose, on vaping? What do you tell people out in the community who say, you know, but it's not a cigarette? But again, it's it's a tobacco product. Um, most of these um, um, products that we're seeing on the news, um, they're either tobacco or THC or CBD products um, that we're seeing. And the chemical, it, the fact is that there's not enough uh, studies out there to find a definitive answer. But what have you seen in, in recent months? Um, cases of young folks with this uh, horrible lung disease caused directly by vaping. So I think um, in a very short order, we're going to see more studies and we're going to see more hard science uh, to find out uh, the causation. But there definitely is uh, risk risk factors if you're vaping and the flavors and the compounds, they don't know what you're inhaling. So I I tell folks it's it's 
it's not a smart move um, to do any kind of vaping. Um, the science isn't out, out there yet. So, you know, I think um, most young folks, they're, they're treating their bodies as being guinea pigs for these companies to find out what's going on because they do not, in fact, know what's in their own products. Right. You know, well, that- just to build on uh, Jose's comment, I would say that what we do know from even different types of cigarettes that, um, as I said, cancer takes a long time. So we don't know whether or not vaping is going to result in um, lung cancers or other types of cancer. But it certainly would seem that bringing, you know, bringing anything foreign into breathing it deeply into one's lungs um, is a possible, you know, it certainly might set the stage for a cancer down the down the way. And so I think the thinking as an epidemiologist, one of the things that is of concern is what we may be seeing in this in this lung disease, which is being manifest in fairly young people, um, is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we don't know what the ultimate effects are. So just to echo, I think most uh, public health practitioners would recommend that um, we, we really be careful about vaping. I know there was some confusion because it was thought as a possible means to uh, for people who are trying to quit smoking. And I think the jury's still out on that. Um, but again, it's, it's the difference between doing something in moderation and with a, a goal of quitting eventually versus starting a new habit. And that's what we've been really concerned about in young people. Yeah. And so, you know, it certainly makes sense to reduce your risk factors as much as possible. The other thing is, is that there are some risk factors that we can't do anything about, like our family history. Um, so what do you tell people in terms of that, Jose, when they're in the community, just in our, our last minute here, if they tell you that they've got a family history of cancer, what advice do you give to them? Um, well, I uh, definitely speak to your uh, physician, but also um, there are uh, genetic tests now. There's uh, genetic screening um, that can isolate and find out what exactly are your risk factors in different cancers, and you might be able to tailor your lifestyle um, in order to try to avoid these and also increase your screening to be vigilant. So, Lord forbid, if it does happen, you, we, can, we can catch it uh, early at stage one and stage two, and then your options for treatment are, are sometimes infinite. Jose de Jesus is a community health educator, and Dr. Beth Jones is a research scientist at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.